The Tom Woods Show, episode 2200. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you enjoy The Tom Woods Show, it's time to go to the next level. And next level Tom Woods is libertyclassroom.com. This is where my friends and I teach all the stuff you did not get in your conventional education, history, economics, and more, the way it ought to be taught with all the content they left out or distorted. Check it out at libertyclassroom.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here, joined today by comedian Lou Perez, who is the author of the brand new book, That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore, on the death and rebirth of comedy. Lou, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. There is, of course, I heard Michael Malice already mention this, but there's a Smith's song called That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore. And I'll have you know that, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago at Caesar's Palace, we saw Morrissey, who was there for like a five-day brief residency, and we happened to be in town. I'm the kind of guy who shows up in Vegas three days after the guy left. This never happens to me. He happened to be in town right when we were there. So anyway, so I guess we have at least that in common. Yeah, did he play uh, a lot of Smith songs or the new stuff? He only played a couple of Smith songs. Like he opened with How Soon Is Now, which that song always gets me. Yeah. But he did a lot of his solo material. I didn't know any of it. And it was one of those concerts where even though you don't know any of the material, you're having an absolutely fantastic time the whole time. And he has a fantastic band too. I, I got to see him live some years back. And, um, you know, he's somebody I, I grew up listening to. So it was really cool to see him live. And what's funny is, before my book was released, obviously, you know, the cover was available for people to pre-order. Some guy online saw it and said, oh man, Morrissey is rolling in his grave right now. And to which I, I, had, I had to correct the guy and say, number one, Morrissey is still alive. And number two, he's pretty based. Like, yeah, Morris, he is. You know? Yeah. I mean, the thing about, I'm sorry what we're talking about Morrissey said in your book, but we'll get to, I mean, sure. in a way your book led me to this, but Morrissey's kind of all over the map in that he's just his own man. So he's radically animal rights. In fact, he invites animal rights people to be at his shows to hand out literature. But at the same time, he was for Brexit. He, at least from what little I've heard him say, he didn't buy into the COVID lockdown stuff. And he has an interestingly adversarial relationship with the music press. So I, I just like him. Yeah, and, and I think it's a, he's also just a really wonderful example of someone who, like, I'm the son of a butcher. I grew up eating meat my whole life. And I can appreciate, okay, he's a vegan, fine. He's not necessarily pushing that on me because all I want from him is his great music. To quote the Smiths, um, the songs that saved your life, you know? And I think it's sort of, uh, I don't know, it kind of says something about the times that we're living in, especially when people are going after him for his extra musical opinions, where people would just have a really tough time or separating the art from the artist. And it's like, no, I can enjoy this person's music. And I don't have to even think about what they think about Brexit, what they think about lockdowns or anything like that. I just, I want the music. Yeah, and I think that's more or less what he he more or less believes that, that even though he'll give his opinion if you ask him for it, he's not one of these celebrities who thinks we're all waiting with bated breath to find out what he thinks about the capital gains tax or something. You know what I mean? He really is here to be a performer and he's a, he's a really, really good one. All right, so let's dive in here. Now, when I see a book by a comedian like you, I basically expect it to be 
oh, cancel culture is terrible and political correctness is ruining comedy. You can't tell jokes anymore. Millennials are humorless and so on and on. How is your book going to tell me something other than just that? Well, I think one of the things that I tried to do with the book is look back on the 20 years of me doing comedy and sort of re-examining what I love so much about it. And what I love so much about comedy is that throughout my whole life, good times and bad times, comedy was there. And comedy was always a way to break through darkness, whether it's you know personal darkness or political darkness or cultural darkness. There was always like a light that I think comedy provided. So rather than be the people that you hear today who are just constantly, you know, complaining about all of this stuff. What I want to show is that, is I know there is a future here with comedy. And in order to get there, we need to be willing to push back and to fight for what I think comedy does so well. And that is challenging us, um, sacred cows, challenging the way that we look at the world, the way others look at the world. So overall, I really want my, my book to be a positive step forward. You mention in your book a sketch from Saturday Night Live that Rob Schneider himself recently referred to uh, just over the past couple of weeks in an interview. And that involved a 2016 sketch, I guess, immediately after the election. And it depicts Hillary Clinton. Who's What's the name of the actress who played her? Kate McKinnon. And she was singing, right. And she was singing Hallelujah. And apparently Rob Schneider said that that really was the death knell for SNL. So it's interesting that you also mention that sketch in your book. So given that your subtitle has to do with the death and rebirth of comedy, and Rob Schneider is saying that in effect that marked the death of SNL, can you pinpoint a particular trend or moment or something culturally that represented the death of comedy? You know, I as I say in my book, I, I think SNL provided two of the lowest points. There was that scene that you described that as you're telling it, I almost can't believe that it really happened. And then the other one was a send-off to President Obama where uh, two members of the cast sang to Sir with love to him and no punchline or anything going on. And um, And it's the same thing with the Hallelujah sketch. I just want to make sure that people who didn't see it know about that. That's why we're saying it's so ridiculous. There was no comedy. Yeah, no comedy whatsoever. It wasn't like the comedy bombed. There wasn't any comedy. Yeah, no attempt at comedy whatsoever. And, you know, it's funny, like with SNL, when when I first started doing sketch comedy videos and putting it out on YouTube and in the early days of YouTube, we would make it a point where we would say, look, if we have this idea, we have to get it shot, edited, and out by the latest, like Saturday afternoon. Because there was always the chance that, you know, SNL would do this subject, that SNL would would take this joke, that this joke would be said on a weekend update. And for years, you know, we we had that hanging over us. You know, we got to get this out before SNL. And then I would say for what, maybe the past decade or so, that thought never crosses my mind. I never think, oh, I got to hurry up because SNL is going to tell this joke or tell this joke better. And in a way, you know, I think it's sad for people who really like SNL to see it fall. But on the other hand, it's great for independent comedians like myself and others who are no longer competing with SNL because that's not where the vanguard is of comedy anymore. 
where the comedy is really happening is on all of these online platforms and being produced independently. So I think like that's what's really crucial now is that we're we're making it happen without you know being a part of a mega legacy machine like SNL. So let's talk then for a second about what would constitute the rebirth of comedy. Is it in fact the existence of these marketplaces that are not the traditional ones that are sort of in the nooks and crannies of the comedy world? I think so. Yeah, and and I also think something's happened too uh, with comedy over the years. It used to be that there was kind of like one pathway where if you were a stand-up comedian, you'd get that, you know, sitcom deal or maybe you get that movie deal and that that was sort of your path. Whereas now, and I, I think I'm I'm sort of an example of this, like I didn't know where my career was going to go. I didn't know which avenue it was going to be. I, I didn't, maybe in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if one day I wrote a book? But the way that I got here was unexpected and I really went with the flow and what was happening. So I think even now, how one would describe what comedy is, like you have people who provide hours and hours of comedy entertainment every single week on podcasts. Then you have people who do stand-up comedy, you have people who do sketch comedy, you have people who, for those out there who aren't that into like TikTok, there are a lot of comedians who are entertaining, you know, millions of people on that platform. So I think there's something really exciting happening where you're able to do your comedy in all these different ways and also just build an audience too, build followers that are going to support your work. And I don't think there's like ever been a time like this. Yeah, that's true. And I've asked musicians about this because in this day and age, there's so much music out there that you could listen to. So many bands, so much music, all of it at your fingertips. It's really, really hard to to stand out when you have that much competition. But at the same time, you also have, at least in theory, you have access to the whole world. I mean, you can put a song out, the whole world can hear it, and you can build up a fan base in ways you couldn't have done otherwise. So on the one hand, because it's so easy to get your material out there, a whole lot more people are doing it. But at the same time, it is easier to get your music out there, and you do have all these different avenues to publicize it and host it and all that. And I've asked musicians, which of these two factors tends to win out? The nobody hears my music because it's just the music world is flooded with new music or thank goodness for the internet because finally I can get my music out. And in general, people are saying it's it tends to be the second one. And you think comedy is kind of like that? I think so. And, and something that, that I found too about comedy as far as you know, being able to you know, make a living off of it. So there was a time where uh, my comedy duo, Greg and Lou, were doing really well on YouTube with uh, Google advertising. And a number of our videos ended up getting demonetized. And they weren't demonetized because they were of a political nature or anything like that. They were demonetized because some of the videos were, I guess, a little too dark or gory and advertisers didn't want to run ads on it. And that was a real bummer, you know, because it's like, oh man, here you have, we have this revenue stream that is no longer bringing in what it, what it used to. But something that I noticed was, you know, how important it is to do live entertainment, especially comedy. And from performing at, you know, events like uh, Pork Fest, Freedom Fest, you know, doing those sorts of activities, you know, I, I sort of realized there's such a, an amazing fan base within, you know, say like uh, our people who 
are hungry for entertainment and they love to support us. It's like, wow, I think it would be really important to build that out, you know, to have that be something that is definitely a part of my future. I want to be performing more for our people. And I think, especially after, you know, coming out of uh, you know, the lockdowns and, and all that, just sort of reigniting that all important social aspect of performance, of entertainment, of being able to see your audience and connecting with people on that level. That's something I think is is definitely important for the future of comedy and really all entertainment. In your comedy, are there any lines you won't cross? You know, you get that, I get that question a lot. I think in the abstract, you know, it's like, are there any lines I wouldn't cross? And I'd be like, no. But the reality is though, if you take like the darkest subject or the most controversial subject, the darker or more controversial it is, the more it needs to be treated, you know, the more it needs to be honed to work as a joke. So I think if there's a subject that I wouldn't touch, it would probably be because I don't have a strong enough joke to work out on it. And I don't want to be one of those guys who throws something out there. And if it doesn't work, I just blame the audience. Like, oh, you didn't get it. Or you guys are snowflakes or, you know, or anything like that. I think the more controversial something is, the more work you got to do to make it work. I hope that answer, I hope that yeah, answer works yeah, for no, you. No, that's fair enough. I asked Dave Smith that question. He said, I don't have any such lines. I'll joke about anything. Because mm-hmm. there are some people who believe, you know, who really enjoy dark humor. And they, you know, they, they can make a case for it. I think if I were a comedian, I'd be the sort of person who could appreciate all these kinds of things, but they wouldn't be my personal cup of tea. Mm-hmm. So like, for instance, there may be some people on social media who post certain kinds of memes that maybe the meaning of it I'm okay with, but the presentation isn't my style, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna condemn them on my show or anything like that. I'm not that kind of person. You know, of course, your book, you mentioned quite a few comedians, uh, well-known comedians. You have a lengthy thing on Chris Rock, and plenty of others. So I'm curious if you had to, if you had to design a uh, Mount Rushmore. So that means four heads. Mount Rushmore of comedy, according to Lou Perez. Who would those be? And I know it's hard because there are like a million of them. But I'm going to pin you down. Pick four greats for me, and then let's talk a little bit about what is it that made them great. A lot of people are funny. What made these people great? Wow, that's a toughie, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's tough. You know, I think the the first two are probably the easiest, and that's George Carlin and Richard Pryor. And I think I think those two are are the easiest because they were so great and influential decades and decades and decades ago, and a lot of their work still holds up today. So I think they definitely need to be included on that. As far as what would the other two be? See, I I got my start doing improv comedy and sketch comedy. So I think that I need to include, you know, some sketch comedians in there. I would probably say Scott Thompson from The Kids in the Hall. The Kids in the Hall were just an incredibly influential sketch comedy team to me. The stuff that Scott Thompson did and continues to do, he's one of the I I describe him as as, you know, just one of the most dangerous mofos uh, in sketch comedy. Um, and he's somebody I, I admire very much and, and look up to. Man, who would, the, who would the fourth one be? I think you'd, I mean, I mean you could probably uh, put Dave Chappelle in there just because of the importance that he has with stand-up comedy 
as well as sketch comedy. Chappelle's show was incredibly influential. I, yeah, you could probably, yeah, I don't think you can go wrong with those. And the, the th- funny thing is, if you if you ask me this next week, I might have like a different four yeah. for, for you, you know? Yeah, I've asked people for Mount Rushmore's on a variety of things, and it's so hard to pin things. That's like somebody asks you, what's your favorite movie? I don't know. What are you asking me a question like this for? Right. How am I supposed to come up with an answer for that? I, I want to ask you, even though this is not directly related to the book, I, I ask every comedian who comes on this show about this. Naturally, in fact, I, I listened to your interview with Michael Malice. So I know there's been at least one time where you've had a rough experience with an audience, but I don't want to talk about that one. Okay. Uh, just in general, very rarely, I've, I've seen a lot of stand-up comedians, some well-known, some no-names, but I have been present only one time for a comedian who just bombed. And once he started losing the audience, it just didn't matter how good his material was. He just couldn't get them back. It's because for some reason, for some reason, an audience for a comedian, it's like they get angry at you if you're not funny enough. Like they are they are now, if it's the last thing they do, they're not going to laugh at your jokes. So is it possible to get an audience back if you feel like you're losing them? Yeah, I definitely think so. But, you know, like what you described there, I mean, you are dealing with a mob. Yeah, <laughs> it's it becomes you know that that mob that mob mentality you know these really just unconscious vibes I, I don't know that go on there. I think in order to to get the audience back, you really need to be on top of your game. You know, you have to be all there. I'll give you an example that you know happened recently, and I, I won't name any names or, or anything like that. But I was uh, let's just say after a very long drive. I drove about seven hours to get a train. And then I was supposed to take this train another three hours to perform stand-up comedy that night. And when I got to the train station, I found out that someone I know was killed. Um, he had been murdered. It was a really hard thing to find out. Um, forget about how I feel about it. Um, you know, I was thinking about his family. And it was just such an awful thing to find out. Then I had to take a train for three hours. And then after that train ride, I had to go and perform like a half hour of stand-up in a bar setting that wasn't equipped for stand-up comedy. And I had about half the audience there seemed interested to hear what I had to say. And the other half it was like I didn't even exist. They were going about, you know, talking, have flirting, you know, having their um, their interactions. And um, I got to a point where I was trying to win back the the crowd, but my mind was just gone, and I was just all over the place, and I was unable to bring those people back around to the show. And um, maybe I shouldn't have been doing comedy that night. You know, maybe I wasn't uh, because I wasn't all there. I didn't have all my faculties there. Not only was I, I had, you know, terrible news that I found out, but but also I was a little tired and sleep deprived. But maybe I could have got them on a better night. You know, maybe I could have, uh, you know, worked it better. And, you know, ultimately, it's sort of like with with comedy, you know, you take the times that you're not at your best and you try to move on and learn from them. And you also know that, well, you know, there, there's another gig down the road and hopefully, you know, be better prepared for that one. Can we talk for a minute about the chapter, How I Became a Far-Right Radical? Because I think, isn't that the piece that ran in the Wall Street Journal? Yes, yes, it is. 
Okay. How did you become a, quote, far-right radical? Yeah. So um, apparently there was an academic paper. It was a a preprint. And uh, a bunch of academics had done this study on the growth of right-wing echo chambers on YouTube. And you think about like, wow, you have people from Harvard and MIT, I believe, and all these really big institutions of higher learning studying YouTube. Oh, okay. In the back of the uh, of the paper, there were lists of hundreds of YouTube channels. They were split up into far left, left, center, right, right of center, I think, and then uh, far right. And a number of channels listed as far right included the Joe Rogan experience, Sam Harris, I believe uh, Brett Weinstein was on there, and my old comedy channel, We the Internet TV. So, you know, at the very least, I was in some good company. You know, so I, I, a number of friends had shared this paper with me. And one friend uh, in particular said, you know, you should do a response to this. And I was like, at first, I was kind of, oh, yeah, whatever. Um, but then I started thinking about it and I said, wait a minute, I had uh, just lost my job not too long before that. And I'm going to be applying to new gigs. And it's not a good mark on your resume to have far right <laughs> next to you. So I, uh, I ended up writing the response that ran in the, in the Wall Street Journal. And it was actually from, from that piece uh, that I ended up getting uh, this book deal. So you know, a lot of good came out of that. And uh, for the book, I, I reached out to a couple of the authors of the paper to see what's what. And uh, it turns out that they did get a lot of criticism for the paper, and they ended up changing it in a number of ways. And one of the big ways is they got rid of the the table of uh, the list of all the channels uh, in the back. And um, one of the authors uh, who I communicate with over email, he told me, see, this is a good example of science working. And to that, I said, yeah, but, you know, the printed paper with all of the changes, is behind a paywall. <laughs> yeah, right. In the original paper, the dime a dozen. Exactly. Yeah. The original one is out there, you know, and, and nobody is going to spend $10 to read this paper except for me. Um, so, so there you have it. I mean, stuff like that, that happens to me. It just gives me more street cred with my people. That's no problem because I don't need a real job. You know, I don't have to go, I don't have to worry about my reputation because if anything, with my target audience, that would enhance my reputation. So it's no problem. <laughs> but I can understand why somebody would say, look, you jerk. <laughs> why are you characterizing me like this? Why are you doing this to me? By the way, how do you, when you try to write up a, uh, a routine and you're coming up with all the different bits, you know, there are a lot of minefields, of course, especially if you're doing political comedy. I remember when when Bob Odenkirk had a heart attack on the set of uh, Better Call Saul. And all of a sudden, the whole world was united on, I hope Bob Odenkirk is okay. And a few people on Twitter even noted that and said, you know, whatever our differences are, we all want Bob Odenkirk to be okay. But that is pretty much it. There is so little goodwill between huge portions of the American population that really all we have is Bob Odenkirk being well. So you as a comedian, you want to win people over to you. You want them laughing, having a great time. But if you're going to do any kind of political comedy, it seems like you're walking such a tightrope. You're looking for just that little thing like that they'll love and and not hate you for, but that's still funny and edgy. How do you do it? I wouldn't even try. I would would (laughs) tell jokes about uh, 
ordinary observations like Jerry Seinfeld, right, who, who steers completely clear of politics. Well, well, first off, if you were to ask me the same question about the Mount Rushmore of comedy uh, a week from now, I, you could probably add Bob Odenkirk to that. Um, oh, okay. I, I, I think a lot of people don't realize just what a great sketch comedian he was, a, a writer uh, and performer. His show with uh, Mr. Show with Bob and David is, you know, just another one of those legendary, really important uh, programs. Yeah, I think it's something where it's really important when you're talking about you know, politics or, or, you know, tiptoeing into these minefields is to go in with the confidence that you're going to try this stuff. And if it doesn't work, you could possibly polish it or, you know, find a way to make it better and just keep trying it, keep trying it. And I think it's really important for comedians to come up and to experiment in an environment that is more forgiving and, you know, obviously the times that we're living in, that isn't necessarily the case. You know, there are a lot of times where comedians aren't necessarily willing to try out that material. Not so much out of fear that, oh, maybe it won't land, but somebody's going to take real offense to this and try to cancel me, if you will. So I think it's really important to sort of as a culture, be a lot more forgiving for especially artists trying to experiment and try new stuff. Other than your book, which of course is the main thing we want to talk about, what else should people know about you in terms of how they can follow you and hear more of you? Yeah, so like everybody in the world, I... Um, you have a podcast. I have a podcast. <laughs> right. It's a... I worked really hard on the title. It's the, the Lou Perez podcast. Okay. And uh, so there's that. I make uh, sketch comedy videos. So if you guys want to check me out on YouTube at The Lou Perez, and then also I'm on Locals. Our friend Michael Malice is on Locals as well. Oh, yeah. TheLouPerez.Locals.com. Okay, and it's Lou, L-O-U, and then Perez, P-E-R-E-Z. Well, the book is That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore on the Death and Rebirth of Comedy with our friend Lou Perez. I have not had you on the show before, but I did get to see you at a Mises Caucus event and you were just outstanding. I think you were filling in for Dave Smith. Like at the last minute, they had to get you in there because he couldn't be there. And there was no sense of, wow, this guy just threw something together at the last minute. No, 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 no. We absolutely loved your set. Absolutely loved it. It was excellent. Uh, thank you so much. And, and I, I absolutely love performing for the Mises Caucus. You guys have been so great to me and I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was so memorable. It just capped off a wonderful event having you there. So thank you for that, for this book, and for your time with me today. Thank you, Tom. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for another week of episodes of The Tom Woods Show. I would make promises to you about all the wonderful episodes coming next week, but I can't remember what any of them are. So you just have to take my word for it. Tune in next week. See you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.